Well, if you join me in 1 Kings, we're going to pick it up in 1 Kings chapter 3. You remember last time we're so excited about a young man named Solomon who uh, was given a blank check by the Lord. He asked, or the Lord said he'd give him anything he wanted. And he asked for an understanding heart so that he might be able to rule and judge God's people. So God gave him that. We read about that last time and the Lord also made this promise to him. The Lord said, since you didn't ask for a victory over your enemies and you didn't ask for wealth, I'm going to give all those things to you anyway. So the Lord's going to bless Solomon. The Bible tells that God loved Solomon from the day he was born. And so, you know, there was something special about uh, Solomon's relationship with the Lord, something special about how God redeemed such a, a horrible beginning in his life. I mean, really, between uh, David and Bathsheba, Solomon is their child, uh, their second son. And so God has his hand on him. God has his hand on him from the beginning. And so, but the Lord gives him this warning, and I want you to be reminded of this warning before we start in verse 16 of chapter 3. In verse 14, this is what he says. So if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke. And indeed it had been a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And he offered up burnt offerings, peace offerings, and made a feast for his servants. So the Lord had this challenge to him. I was talking to some of the guys, I do a discipleship group on Tuesday night, and I'm kind of mulling over this concept. A lot of times, if we were to look at the gospel of Jesus Christ as a circle, I think a lot of times our focus is that we're in the middle of the circle. And we focus on the fact that God loves me. Of course, it's absolutely true, God loves me. But I'm not the middle of the circle. God's the middle of the circle. And it's about his will and his direction in my life. And the Lord tells Solomon, listen, you're going to live long. You're going to have, you're going to walk with me all the days. Just walk in the statutes that I gave to your father, David. But we're going to see, even in the beginning, he begins to open up the door for some of those things that God told him to be aware of. And for you and I, listen, they are little. Please hear me, they're little things. For the most of us, the, the ability to, to become uh, ineffective in ministry is not going to be because of adultery. It's not going to be because of murder. It's, it's not going to be because of some, some big sin. It's going to be because of some little things that we say, well, it's really not a sin. It's really not a problem. It's really not bad. But the Lord lays out for us to cast aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. And we've talked about that before. Listen, it's, it's not only the fact that each of us are susceptible to a particular sin, but the phrase can also be rendered that sin that's so easily avoidable. You know, if I struggle with alcohol, that's an easily avoidable sin. Alcohol will not grow in my house. 
will not grow in my fridge. It will not magically appear wherever I'm at. It's an easily avoidable sin. It's a difficult thing to get over though because that draw, that desire to go and be in those places where we shouldn't be. So when the Bible talks about those easily avoidable sins and the weights that hold us back, understand that those weights are things that that get between us and God, that create in our walk with Him a shadow where we've allowed a haze, if you will, to come between me and the Lord. So I'm not seeing the Lord clearly. i got this haze. And this haze can be anything. It can be absolutely anything. It can be good stuff. But when we allow that to begin to creep in, it becomes a weight, which helps us or, or causes us struggle in the race that lies before us. The call the Hebrews gives us is to finish the race laid out before us. So finish the race. And if you and I were entering into a race, there's not one of us that would put a weighted vest on to run it. But that's how some of us walk our Christian walk. And I, this is why I think that's something important to consider because I think as we look at scripture that's what tripped up Solomon it's not necessarily going to be one of the big ones in the Ten Commandments it's something that was socially acceptable at his time we talked about it last time it's socially acceptable for them kings to have more than one wife it was socially acceptable for them to to have gold and save. It was socially acceptable for them to build their armies. Everybody would look at that and say, those are all good things. The king ought to be doing that. But each one of those things were, was a step for Solomon away from the Lord, bringing that, uh, a cloud covering up his glory. Now Solomon begins, and in the next several chapters, I don't know how, we'll, hopefully we'll get a couple chapters tonight, but, but as we go... We're just going to begin to see the beginnings of it. Solomon's not really going to start struggling with it because he's focused on building something. You guys remember what Solomon's going to be focused on building? He's focused on building the temple. And while he's focused on building the temple, he's going to be doing relatively good. But we're going to see the foundation laid in his administration. We're going to see the foundation laid in the treasury department. We're going to see the foundation laid as he puts his government together that is going to become big issues in his life, big problems for him to have to face. But when we come to chapter 3, just remember, God's calling him to walk in his ways. Now this first section, we're going to see several sections on the wisdom being evidenced in Solomon's life. The first one is wisdom and judgment. We see wisdom and judgment as the two women come before him. Let's look, verse 16. Now two women who were harlots, came to the king and stood before him. And one woman said, Oh my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house. And I gave birth while she was in the house. And it happened the third day afterward, I had given birth, that this woman also gave birth. And we were together. No one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. Now this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead child in mine. And when I arose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was, dead. But when I examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son whom I had born. 
And the other woman said, No, but the living one is my son, and the dead one is your son. And the first woman said, No, but the dead one is your son, and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. And the king said, The one says, This is my son who lives, and your son is dead. And the other says, No, your son is dead, but my son is the living one. So the king said, Bring me a sword. So we begin to see the wisdom of Solomon. Almost everybody knows anything about the word has heard this story. The two women bringing their child to Solomon. And I think Solomon gives us a clue, a hint in our lives how we ought to help in judgment. When we have opportunity to bring counsel, we want to bring godly counsel. There are times when friends may come to us struggling with one thing or another. Maybe we don't know exactly what's right. I hope we remember the first thing that Solomon asked for. He asked for the sword. Now he's getting a sharp pointy thing. But when we ask for the sword, we're asking for the word of God, which is sharper than any two-edged sword. And able to divide between the thoughts and the intents of the heart. To see within. It's the word of God that, that should be our chief counsel. There's, there's no point in anybody meeting with me. And wanting me to counsel them in one thing or another. If they don't want to hear what the word says. We're both wasting our time. Because all I'm going to tell you is what the word says. It's really simple. If you come to me and say, Jackie, I need marriage counseling. I'm going to say to the husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church. I'm going to say to the wife, respect your husband and submit to him. Those are the two things that God says for marriage. If you don't want to do those, I don't know what I'm going to do to help you. Well, I'll love her when she respects me. I'll respect him when he loves me. Well, we're not getting anywhere, are we? But all I'm going to give you is what the Word says. This is what the Word says. If you won't be obedient to the Word, you're not going to move forward. We can try to want to mix all kind of other stuff into it. And we can try to talk about psychology and, and whatever. Listen, if you won't be obedient to the Word, you're not going to find success. No matter what you're doing. If you think you're going to be okay cheating the government and... Lying and, and hiding money in your, from your taxes and you think God's going to bless that, you go ahead and run with it and see how that works for you. But don't ask me what you should do. I'm going to tell you, you should give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. Because that's what the Word says. doesn't say give Caesar more than he asks for. Just give him what he's supposed to get. But it also says to render unto the Lord the things that are the Lord's. Are we honoring God in our lives? That's godly counsel. Solomon says, bring me a sword. The picture for us New Testament believers is, we have a sword right here. The word of God is the answer. Solomon, he's going to use a real sword. He says, bring me a sword. Divide the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. Well, and the women whose son was living spoke to the king for she yearned with compassion for her son. She said, O oh Lord, give her the living child, by no means kill him. But the other said, Oh, let him be neither mine nor hers, but divide him. And Solomon knew who the mom was. 
So the king answered and said, Give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill him. She is his mother. And all of Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered. And they feared the king, for they saw the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. The whole story is given to us so that we'll know God gave Solomon what he asked for. The ability to discern to have a heart of understanding to judge his people. And he did. And he's young. Now, probably not as young as he was when he was uh, at his coronation, but still a young man, beginning and wondering how he's going to lead the people and guide the people, and God granted him this wisdom and understanding. So in chapter 4, we're going to see him develop his administration. He's going to begin to give... Uh, the jobs to people because we as we understand from the time of Moses remember when Jethro came to Moses and Moses was trying to do it all himself and Jethro said this is not good now there are some people who disagree and think that Moses never should have listened to Jethro well it's okay you if you want to throw that part out you can throw it out and just wait till we get to Acts chapter 6 when God tells the church to do the same thing But at that time, Jethro comes and he says, it's not good. You need to put together a group of men. And that's the beginning of the Sanhedrin, folks. That's the beginning of the 70 right then. The Sanhedrin, the elders who are going to come and are going to be a part of the governing. So that Moses is dealing with the weightier things and these guys are dealing with the everyday matters so he can focus on the Lord's direction and what God's calling him to. The same for Solomon. So King Solomon was king over all of Israel. And these were his officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, the priest. So remember, the priesthood now is coming through Zadok. And he lifts up his son as his, uh, as his chief priest. Eliphoreph and Ahijah, the sons of Sisha, the scribes. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, the recorder. Same recorder that David had. So you're going to see a mixture of people within the administration that David had in the kingdom and you're going to see some of the sons of the faithful being raised up to take other positions. Azariah the son of Nathan over the officers and Zabud the son of Nathan a priest and the king's friend. That phrase and the king's friend or companion is the idea that he's his chief counselor. He fulfills that place uh, that David had had at one time alongside saying, hey, this is the guy who who has my ear, who's going to be my main counselor. Remember, both of these are sons of Nathan. Who's Nathan? Oh, the prophet, right? The guy who came to David and said, you're the man? Confronted David in his sin, who was on David's side all the way through, who was a godly man. Solomon's raising up for himself a godly administration. People who have followed the Lord, people who have had good upbringing, their, their parents were people who followed the Lord, so he's trusting in them, trusting in their children, raising these guys up, showing wisdom in his administration. Uh, he says, then uh, Abishar over the household, that's the palace area, and Adir, uh, Adoniram, the son of Abda, over the labor force. Okay, so these are, in essence, the slaves of of Israel. Keep in mind the slaves of Israel had a, a a labor board. 
and that slaves were to be well treated and cared for. This is not the same concept we have of slavery that, like we had in in the U.S. These guys, you you treated like your labor force, and this is the guy who's to watch over and ensure that those things are taken care of properly. In verse seven, we begin. Uh, with Solomon's wisdom in economics. We're going to see him divide the nation into 12 economic regions. Let's look. And Solomon had 12 governors over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each one made provision for one month of the year. So he divides the entire nation into 12. Now he does this not based on the size of the tribes, because then if you, if you, if you outline just the tribes, you had really big tribes like Judah is a very big tribe. So you're going to get an abundance from Judah, but then maybe you go over to Dan or, or Benjamin, which are smaller tribes, and you're going to get much less. So the nation is divided into, into 12 equal regions, which may be a, a quarter of Judah and part of Benjamin and part of another tribe. And that would be an area that would be a, a region that was taxed one month of the year and the food that was necessary for the armies taking care of his, his uh, uh, palace of people would be drawn from that area. So he divided it into 12 and everybody pulled the even share. There was no crazy tax returns to fill out or deals to do. It was a flat tax level, 12 regions, everybody did their part and it becomes the most prosperous time in Israel's history. So this is a way... Solomon puts together uh, the economic regions. And they're going to line them out for us. These are their names. Ben-Hur. You guys heard of him, haven't you? They made a movie about him. Ben-Hur in the mountains of Ephraim. Ben-Decker in Makkah. Shalabim, Beth-Shemesh, Elon, Beth-Nan. Ben-Hesed and Arubath. To him belong Soko and all the land of Hefer. Ben Abinadab in all the regions of Dor, he had Tephath, the daughter of Solomon, as wife. Baana, the son of Ahilud, in Tanakh, Megiddo, and all of Beshean. Now remember Beshean, that's where Saul and Jonathan were hung. And Megiddo is a particularly important mountain. It's one of the areas that Solomon places a stronghold on. Uh, You'd know it better by the valley's name. Har Megiddo or Armageddon. Megiddo is the mountain that overlooks the Jezreel Valley, the most perfect battlefield in all the earth. And a lot of battles are going to be, have already in the history that we've been reading, been fought there and will be fought there still. So, this is the area of Megiddo and Beshean, uh, which is beside Zeratan, below Jezreel. From Beshean to Abel Melah, as far as the other side of Jokniam. Ben-Geber and Ramoth-Gilead, to him belong the towns of Jer, the son of Manasseh, in Gilead. And to him also belong the regions of Argob and Bashan, 60 large cities with walls and bronze gate bars. Ahinadab, the son of Edo, in Manahem, Achimez, in Naphtali, he also took Basmath, the daughter of Solomon, his wife. Baana, the son of Hushai, in Asher, and Eloth. Jehoshaphat, the son of Perua, in Issachar. Shimei, 
the son of Elah and Benjamin, Geber the son of Uri in the land of Gilead in the country of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and of Og, king of Bashan. You remember those guys, right? Those were areas where the giants were. He was the only governor uh, who was in that land. So, these are the governors and their, and their areas and the taxation that was laid on the people. When we come to the end of Solomon's life, we're going to see the division of the kingdom be because Solomon's son wants to raise the taxes instead of giving the people a break. The people are going to be paying a lot of taxes to build the temple, to supply things. David had already brought a lot in, but they're going to do a lot more. And not only is Solomon going to build the house for the Lord, he's going to build his too. And let's face it, his is going to be pretty posh as well. So, so there's going to be a lot of things that the people are going to be paying in. In verse 20 it says, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. Now, Judah is the biggest tribe in Israel. Israel is the rest. So the, the, what we have here is the beginning or the, the foundation of the concept. Remember when David faced his last rebellion, the people divided. How did they divide? Judah was with the king and the rest of Israel was in rebellion. You're going to see that division become the division between the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. Right now, Judah is prosperous and Israel is prosperous. In fact, they're going to enter into the most prosperous time that, that they're ever going to experience. Which is when we need to have our guard up, right? On the prosperous times, not just in the hard times. And so Solomon reigned over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. And they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. That the river is the Euphrates, not the Jordan. So we're pretty, we're getting closer to the borders <clears throat> that God would have his nation. We're talking about Euphrates to the Nile, big chunk of land that Solomon is in control of. And the nation of Israel is enjoying the blessing of God as uh, God ha has their hand upon them. Now... He goes on in verse 22, and it says, Now Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fatted oxen, 20 oxen from the pastures, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl. For he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river, Euphrates, from Tipsa, even to Gaza, namely over all the kings on this side of the river, and he had peace on every side all around him. So God was fulfilling the promise that he gave to Solomon. Since you didn't ask, I'm still going to give it to you. And there's no, there's no war, there's no battle. There's just Solomon enjoying the, the fruitfulness that God has given him. But you begin to see Solomon enjoying the fruits of the land, right? I mean, for one day, that's a lot of food. He's got a lot of people in the palace, a lot of guys that are a part of his administration, and this is, is what it takes to run that machine. It says, And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine, 
and his fig tree from Dan as far as Beersheba. How many? All the days of Solomon. So the people, extremely safe, extremely prosperous time. Extremely blessed by the hand of God. And then verse 26 says, Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Well, we come into our next little issue. We see the beginning of Solomon beginning to add wives earlier, a couple chapters earlier. Now we see Solomon adding horses. Bible tells in Deuteronomy not to multiply horses. Not because God hates horses, but because that becomes the example of your strength. So when people look at your nation, they say, not that's a nation blessed by God, but that's a nation that's got a big army. And that's what sets them apart. And God always wants to be the thing that sets us apart is him in us, not us. And part of the way that God does that in our life is not by maybe naturally giving us the benefits of, of uh, you know, great strength. When I say when we went through the book of Judges, remember we talked about uh, Samson? And we talked about his great strength and the people always did something. They always marveled at how strong he was. So I'm telling you, he was not some dude with muscles coming out of his ears, all yoked, just looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger walking down the road. Because then they would have said, well, of course he's strong. Look how big he is. They looked at Solomon and said, secret of his strength comes from something else. Because God wants to be evident in our lives by the things we do. By the way we live our life. By the examples that we give. Solomon begins to get tripped up because his heart is drawn away after horses. That when you go to Israel today, every mount you go to was one of Solomon's stables. Solomon's stables at Megiddo. Solomon's stables at Mount Carmel. Solomon's stables all over the place because he had a huge a, a massed army of horses. But that wasn't the secret to his strength. God wants us to always be able to point to him. And that's not an attitude of, of false humility. You know, sometimes people, you try to you ever try to give somebody a, a compliment, say, we good job in worship, or, and they say something like, oh, it's not me, it's the Lord. Or it doesn't have to be like that. When somebody tries to give you a compliment for doing something, we all know it's God. Trust me. Just say thanks. Oh, thank you. And we'll say, you're welcome. You know, just our way of trying to, to give, uh, uh, give you a, a, a plug, uh, encouragement. But the idea being that, that we want in what we do and how we do things that we're pointing to the Lord and not to us. That, that, that it's about him, that it's about focus on, on Jesus. It's about focusing on the Lord and not looking at all the other stuff. Think about our day. And how much in our day is about the Lord and how much in our day is about me? How much in my day is about the Lord and how much is about me? How much of my time is thoughts toward my entertainment? How much of my time is, is work? 
how much of my times, all these other things that we have to do. Now the scripture lets us know that God can be a part of every one of those areas. But we have to be honest with ourselves, don't we? Is God a part of my, my work? When I'm at work, am I a soldier for Jesus Christ? That doesn't mean I do less than everybody else. It means I answer to a higher authority than my boss. And I do what I do as unto the Lord. And I take opportunity to honor God in what I do. When I'm looking for opportunities to entertain myself. Not that entertainment is bad, but am I, doing the, am I enter, being entertained in a godly fashion? Is it about what honors the Lord or is it about what pleases me? Taking an honest, thought-provoking look at my life and where am I spending my life. We all have a gift of 24 hours. Every one of us. 168 hours in a week. Take, keep track of them once. You know there's going to be at six to eight hours of every day taken up in sleep. And then what are we doing? What, where is our focus? Am I shining Christ in those other examples of my life, in those other areas of my life? It's not just about the preacher at church and what's he doing or the elders at church and what are they doing. All of us have the same call in our life. To be someone who is living out front for Jesus Christ. Being that example in the things we do. We can spend a lot of time building for ourselves chariot houses. Bigger barns. Remember Jesus telling the story of the man who had his incredible harvest. And he said, what am I going to do? I don't have room enough for it. So I'll build what? Bigger barns, and I'm gonna, and then next year I'll pull in even more, and then finally I'll have enough, and I'll take my ease. And God said, "Thou fool! Today your life is required of you. You don't have tomorrow. You just have today." See, see, Solomon begins to get off track. He starts to amass all this wealth. And his focus gets on amassing wealth. And then as he's amassing wealth, he's, he's lavishly putting all this stuff on him. Now, we're going to see the Queen of Sheba come uh, probably to a relationship with the Lord because she sees this incredible wealth and this incredible kingdom that, that Solomon has. But she's initially drawn to Solomon. Not to the Lord who gave Solomon all those things. The same way with us. I was challenged this last week uh, listening to a, a, a deal on the radio. Maybe some of you guys heard it too. But, but one of the things that was said, they were talking about giving and, and living a life in a, a, with a, the, a good attitude of giving and how we give. And the challenge was not how much do you give, it's how much do you keep. And, you know, thinking about those, those things challenges me because I want to live my life in such a way that my life becomes evident of Christ in me the hope of glory not some great thing I do or some great thing I have or or any of those things and that becomes a little bit of the focus for Solomon we begin to see here uh, before we focus in on the building of the uh, of the temple so 
It says in verse 27, And these governors, each man in his month, provided food for King Solomon, and for all who came to King Solomon's table. There was no lack in their supply. Is it because the, the governors were incredibly wise? No, it's because God's blessing was upon the nation. Well, they also brought barley and straw to the proper place for the horses and steeds, each man according to his charge. So they also, not only did they bring food to the table of Solomon, but they have the added burden of taking care of all the horses. And let me tell you, there was a lot of horses. And verse 29 says, And God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. I love that phrase. What we see in this is God just lavishing on Solomon all the blessings he can give him. That's the heart of God toward his people. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says, You and I, we already have every spiritual blessing under the heavenlies. Already, today, you have them. It's been given to you. We just have to lay hold, apprehend what God has given. Solomon here is being lavished by the Lord. God's given him everything he could desire. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. Every He's wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezraite, than Heman, Chachol, and Darda the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. Now, if you happen to go through the proverbs, you will say, where's the rest of them? 31 chapters of proverbs. 3,000 proverbs, a thousand, over 1,000 songs. And that number, 1,005, is, is a Hebrew idiom, just like, uh, you know, 1,001 a, a ways to, to cook roadkill. You guys seen that book? 1,001 roadkill recipes. It's the, the concept is there was more than 1,000. It's a Hebrew idiom when they said in Hebrew, 1,005, more than 1,000 songs. And 3,000 proverbs is speaking of, of all the, the wisdom that he had and all the wisdom that he bestowed. And he spoke, also he spoke of trees from the cedar tree of Lebanon even, uh, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of animals, of birds, of creeping things and of fish and men of all nations from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. He had this incredible gift But people came to hear him. And it's going to be a problem. Just a little thing, right? They came to hear him. They come to see him. They came to see his riches. They come to tour the temple that he built. There's going to be this emphasis on Solomon. And God loved, please don't get it wrong, God loved giving all that stuff to Solomon. 
But while you're sitting down and you're thinking, well, how come God doesn't give this all to me? Because the Lord learned his lesson. <laughs> he gave it to Solomon and Solomon's heart. It's going to turn from the Lord. And he's going to struggle in his relationship with God. They came to hear his wisdom, the excellence of Solomon. But in chapter 5, it says, Now Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon because he heard that they had anointed him king in the place of his father. For Hiram had always loved David. Remember, they had this relationship. They had this relationship of old uh, with David. So Solomon sent to Hiram saying, You know how my father David could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the wars which were fought against him on every side until the Lord put his foes under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor evil occurrence. And behold, I propose to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord spoke to my father David, saying, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, he'll build the house for my name. Now therefore command that they cut down cedars for me from Lebanon. And my servants will be with your servants, and I will pay you wages for your servants according to whatever you say. For you know there is none among us who has skill to cut timber like the Sidonians. So David's going to draw cedar, cedar trees from Lebanon. They're going to come from Hiram. They're going to cut them down, prepare the wood. He's going to pay for them. They're going to bring it. There's no war. There's no battle. And he's going to begin to amass the building blocks for the temple that he's going to build. So, Scripture lays it out for us. So it was, when Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, for he has given David a wise son over this great people. I always like it when I see people who were traditional enemies of God who know God's name. I find that interesting when I look through Scripture and I see it. Hiram uses the capital L-O-R-D. That means in the Hebrew language, he spoke or wrote the name of God. The Yahweh, the Y-H-V-H, the consonants of the name of God. He laid it out. And so he had come to some understanding of who God is. Whether he has a relationship with God, I don't know. We'll find out when we're in glory. But it's interesting to see. When traditional enemies or people who had problems between nations come to know the name of God. Why is that interesting? Because by the time of Christ, they didn't know it anymore. Not very many of them. But at this time, the folks around the kingdom of Solomon had an understanding. And Hiram sent to Solomon saying, I have considered the message which you sent me. And I will do all you desire concerning the cedar and the cypress logs. My servants will bring them down from Lebanon to the sea, and I will float them in rafts by sea to the place you indicate to me, and will have them broken apart there. Then you can take them away, and you shall fulfill my desire by giving food for my household. Then Hiram gave Solomon cedars and cypress logs according to all his desire. And Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household. 
and twenty cores of pressed oil. And Solomon gave Hiram, this Solomon gave Hiram year by year. So as they bring the wood down, Solomon is providing food for their nation as they give cedar. I don't want you to think that that cedar is only going to be used in the temple. It's also going to be used on Solomon's house. Which is fine. There's nothing wrong with Solomon building the big house. But what is going to be interesting is how much time he spends on both. How much time he spends building God's house. And how much time he spends building his own. Well, scripture goes on to tell us what's going to happen next. So the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he had promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon. And the two of them made a treaty together. And King Solomon raised up a labor force out of all Israel. And the labor force was 30,000 men. Woo! You think it's hard to manage the people you have to manage. Manage 30,000. That had got to be quite the feat. That's a lot. For those of you who have had opportunity to go and visit the Temple Mount, those 30,000 are going to be busy. They're going to be cutting stones that are so big, they don't make a crane today that could pick it up. And they're going to move them from the quarry, and they're going to set them at the foundation of the temple. They're going to take the mountain, in essence, the mountain of, uh, what did I just lose it? Moriah. They're going to take Mount Moriah, and they're going to build around Mount Moriah and make it flat. Make a flat part. They're going to cut out of this part of the hill, and they're going to make a flat part of Mount Moriah. And once they got it flat, then they're going to build the temple building on top. So these stones that they're laying now are stones that you uh, can still go see that, that date back to the the time of Solomon, big giant stones that they that they set, and later on Herod's going to come through and and uh, put his little stamp of approval on them and do some expansion of the temple. But for now, uh, Solomon's laying it out and he's getting that part of the temple put together. Today, what people go see is mostly what uh, Herod the Great had put on top. You have to go under the city to see anything that had anything to do with Solomon. Um, current. So, they set these stones, 30,000 men, busy working. And it says, and he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. And they were one month in Lebanon and two months at home. And Adoniram was in charge of the labor force. Remember the Bible told us Adoniram was the guy who was going to be over the labor force. The labor force are guys, they get paid. But in essence, it's like a slave force that goes over and, and, and does the work. Solomon had 70,000 who carried burdens and 80,000 who quarried stone in a mountain. Now remember, I told you they're going to make a mountain flat. That's a big job, big undertaking. So they're going to cut the block out of the stone and they're going to move it to the mountain and they're going to begin to lay the foundation to flatten the mountain. So you have 30,000 guys who are 10,000 each shifts going to Lebanon, cutting the cedars, floating them down the river, getting them to uh, Solomon, breaking them apart, getting them over to the the building project in Jerusalem. Then you have, uh, what did he say? 80,000 who quarried stone 
and 70,000 who carried burdens <laughs> or really big stones. And they that's how they moved the stones from the quarry to the place where the stones were needed. Beside 3,300 from the chiefs of Solomon's deputies who supervised the people who labored in their work. So you have 3,300 supervisors for 150,000 laborers. Right? 70,000 carrying stones, 80,000 quarrying, cutting stones, and 3,300 supervising. This is no small undertaking. This is a big chunk of Solomon's reign and Solomon's life. And as Solomon puts this together, he has the gifts and the talents that God needed him to have to be able to do it. Think about it. The Bible tells us, or the concept certainly within the pages of Scripture, that God's commandments are his enablements. God gave Solomon what he needed to be able to do this job. It's a big job. And he does a fantastic job with, with what God has called him to do. Now, it says, And the king commanded them to quarry large stones, costly stones, and hewn stones, to lay the foundation of the temple. Now that foundation is those stones that I was telling you about. They are humongous. I want to say it's five, I don't know, I'll be, probably be wrong. I want to say 500 tons, but it could be more than that. But it's, you can, it's probably, what, uh, 75 foot from tip to tip. And one guy touches one end and another guy way down touches the other end. Big, big stone that they cut. And those stones are set so precise, you can't, there's no mortar. And you cannot put nothing between them. They're tight. You can see where the line is. But you're not putting nothing in there. They just fit. The way they cut them, the way they put them together... The way they, they did the work, it's amazing how they laid those in. So it says in verse 18, So Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the Gebelites quarried them, and they prepared timber and stones to build the temple. So they're gathering together all those pieces. They're putting together all the building blocks. He's very focused on what needs to be done and the work that needs to be accomplished. He's amassed a huge group of people to work. And you have 150,000 at home. And you have 30,000 who are each rotating shifts going down to Lebanon and cutting cedars. You get 3,300 guys supervising all that stuff. And I wonder... How much in all that crazy, busy movement and motion, how much time was spent loving the Lord his God with all his heart? Well, he had a job to do. But I think he begins to lose sight of the value of his relationship with God. You remember how it all started? We go back a couple of chapters and Solomon is so worried about how he's going to rule the people that he's bringing this huge offering to the Lord. And the next huge offering we're going to see is at the dedication of the temple. 
Well, this is not just a couple of weeks, folks. This is a long period of time where people are working and running and moving and, and the busyness of life. And don't you think Solomon could relate to the busyness of your life? I mean, he's running 150,000 people. And uh, actually 180,000 if you look at them all. Plus all the complaints and all the problems and all the hassles. Don't think it was just smooth sailing. He's running all that stuff. While we're thinking on that and the busyness and the fact that he's called to do that, that, that. He's supposed to do it. Now just flip in your Bibles to the right until you come to the last book. And go to chapter 2. And let's read together something that Jesus Christ dictated to John about a church that he wanted to give a a message to. In Revelation chapter 2, we're just going to look at uh, verses 1 through 7 just quickly together. Now to the angel of the church at Ephesus, write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Every time we look at one of these letters, I'm not going to go into a big lesson on Revelation right now. Jesus is going to present himself in in a way that is necessary for that church to understand him, to help them be able to do what he's asking them to do. So what is it? How is he presenting himself to them? He, as he who holds the seven stars in his hand. Chapter 1 tells us the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. The seven messengers that, that are there. Whether you look at that as the seven pastors over those congregations, or you look at it as real, actual angels, it doesn't change the meaning of the text at all. It means that Jesus is in control of those. What else is he doing? He's walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Revelation chapter 1 tells us the seven golden lampstands are the churches. So he's in the midst of the churches. He's moving in the midst of the churches. He's holding the angels of the churches. So it speaks of the control within the leadership of those churches and the place of those churches. And he's there and he's aware and he knows what's going on. He's there to, to do work. What's he talking about? He's talking about his centrality and his control his centrality and his control is it possible to get so busy that God stops being central and you start thinking more about how many stables you need to build or how big a house you need to have or how many more wives you should add to your stable of wives Is it possible to begin to think about all of those other things and lose the centrality of God? In in terms of what we're looking at with Solomon, I just want you to think about it. Then Jesus said in verse 2, I know your work, your labor, your patience. You can't bear with those who are evil. You tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them to be liars. And you have persevered. And have patience 
and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. So what's he talking about? Listen, he commends their dedication. He knows their work and their labor and their patience. They're dedicated people. They're busy. He, he commends their discernment. You, you don't just accept everything everybody says. You test and make sure, just like the Bible said. Test the spirits and make sure they're true. And if you find someone who's a false teacher, you label them as such. So the people aren't going to be tripped up by their teachings. So these are guys who are busy doing the work that God's called them to do. And the third thing he says is he, he commends them for their faithfulness. You're being faithful to do what I've asked you to do. You're being dedicated. And you have the gift of discernment. And you're faithful and you're busy and you're moving and you're making things happen. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. In the beginning, he introduced himself as the God who is in control and needs to be central in the midst of the church. And he talks about their busyness, which was all good stuff, right? Everybody okay? Everything, the commendations are all good stuff. Jesus says, you get A in all these areas. An A for your dedication. You get an A for your discernment. You get an A for your faithfulness. You're doing good things. He doesn't say you lost your love. What's he say? You left it. Listen, God's call to man, his desire of man, way back in Deuteronomy is the same as it is today. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest of all the commandments? You remember what he said? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So when he says you left your first love, the motivation for their busyness had got lost. The motivation for their busyness was gone. What was the motivation? This is my love for God. For Solomon, think about the busyness, the craziness, the huge labor force, the the people he's got to manage and all the stuff. And it's only going to get bigger. But his heart, he begins to lose the motivation behind what he's doing. He's going to write a book called Ecclesiastes where he's going to say, Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. My whole life is empty and useless. What was the point of amassing all this wealth? What was the point of building all these armies? What is the point of life under the sun? It is empty. The words of the wisest man who ever lived. But the words of the wisest man who ever lived, who has lost sight of the Son. He's lost sight of his purpose, his motivation. That relationship at one time that he had, that sweetness with God that he had experienced when he took the blank check and he asked for the right things and God blessed him. That motivation that he had, eventually the busyness of everything else just choked it all out. Our lives are busy, aren't they? And there's a lot of things going on. And a lot of them are good things. Things that God would give you an A for. The challenge is our motivation. Remember when I told the story about the stone, right? Who are you carrying the stone for? You guys remember? That's the question. 
Who are we carrying the stone for? Why are we doing the things that we do? So what is it that Jesus tells them? I'm sure it's the same thing God shouted to Solomon in the quiet place. Solomon couldn't hear because there was a lot of commotion going on. He says, remember from where you have fallen. Recognize. I left my first love. I've lost my motivation. I've lost that thing. Then what's he call? Repent. Repent. Remember first. Remember what? Remember that I am caught in love of self. Remember that I'm caught up in love of pleasure. Remember that I'm caught up in the love of this world. But I am not expressing the most important love. Love for the Lord my God. Repent means a change of mind and direction. Not just an acknowledgement. Yep, I'm doing that. But a decision to change my mind and to change my direction. And then he says, and do the first works. Doesn't mean focus on the performance that you had in the beginning. It means what it says, to do the first works. The word first is preeminent. What's the preeminent work? What is the chief thing that we're supposed to do? Love the Lord our God. Love Him. Why are we doing what we do? Why do we come on a Wednesday? Why do we study the Word? Why are we busy? Why are we trying to help people? Why do we feed people on Wednesday night? Why are we doing the things that we do? Our motivation, it's okay to be busy. It's actually not bad. Jesus doesn't condemn them for being busy. He commends them. He says, good job. But who are you doing it for? Are you doing it for yourself? Is it so people will say, oh, the wisdom of Solomon? Or is it so people will say, wow, look how God has blessed the nation? Pretty soon the nation will enter into a time of national pride. Look at what we have done. Trippy slope, right? Because it's God who does it. It's God who does it. It's God who did the work. It's God who's done that. So the challenge to us as we look at this journey of Solomon and we look at the great thing he's going to do and the temple he's going to build and the prayer dedication he's going to give and these are all incredible things. Also have eyes to see how all that busyness crowded out his heart and he, his love grew dull. And if you want to see how dull it grew... Read Ecclesiastes. It's a good read. But it talks about the despair in Solomon's heart as he began to look at the reason behind everything he was doing. And it it gives us the hint of that same thing Jesus says to the church at Ephesus. You left your first love. So remember, repent, return. And love the Lord your God with all your heart. Amen? Why don't you stand with me and let's pray.
Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just thank you as we work our way through First Kings and we, we go through the development of the administration and the beginning of the accumulation of wealth and of Solomon and the, and the praise and the accolades that he gets for doing what God has asked him to do. I'm not condemning any of that. But what I am saying is that that's the beginning. Start to believe our own press. We become the center of the circle of the gospel instead of God. It begins to become about us. And slowly but surely our focus is on our horsepower. Or our family, the size of our family. Or how much wealth we have. Maybe it becomes any number of other good things. But if it is anything other than the Lord my God, the central in my life, that He's the reason I breathe in the morning, He's the reason I open up my word I study the word. He's the reason I pray. He's the reason I want to love people. He's the reason I want to feed people. He's the reason I want to help people. He's the reason behind it all. And we stand close and we stay tight. Then we won't have our Ecclesiastes. What is my purpose? We'll know. My purpose is to glorify the Lord my God to raise the name of Jesus Christ on high and if God says I do that best through tribulation and suffering then bring on the tribulation and suffering because he is central if the Lord says I do that best through prosperous times then bring on prosperity and let's glorify the name of the Lord it's all about him God do your work in our lives we want to be those who don't just start well we want to finish well and we finish well not like the church at Ephesus who who struggled with their motivation and knowing that the reason they did the things they did was to love the Lord their God. God, may we know that is our chief purpose in life, to love God. That's why we feed the least of these. That's why we visit the least of these. Not so I can get a crown. Not so I can be exalted or my name put up in lights. but that he might be exalted. That he might be exalted. God, we want to honor you in all we say and do. We want to recognize that you are the strength, the wind beneath our wings, our ability to overcome. All of those things is found in our relationship with you. So God, 
Help us learn. We, we studied a man after God's own heart and keeping God central. Now as we study a man who got busy about doing the things of God for good reason and did good things and amassed incredible wealth and built the nation in a way that they never have seen since. Help us learn that motion is not a substitute for devotion. And we can be dedicated, but not devoted. And we want to be devoted to you. We want to love you. We want to honor you. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in the praises of your people. And as we go from this place, God, may you be the motivation behind everything we do. And we'll give you all the praise and the glory for it as we seek to honor your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.